0: Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you. Another Thursday evening reflecting into, oh, this wonderful topic of theology of the body, where we are made to look at how we are created in the image and likeness of God as something good and beautiful. And as I do here each and every Thursday for this topic, I have uh ivan mora here so ivan is great to have you with me another evening
1: it's great to be back
0: ivan uh, in the last two weeks we've had the wonderful opportunity to take up this subject matter on theology of the body where we are made to see our sexuality in light of god's wonderful design i have been getting some questions and the questions are very much about freedom um, as they relate to love so i thought what we could do off the top today, before we get into this larger topic of um, naked without shame, and we'll be able to get into Genesis with that, we'll talk a little bit about freedom and also uh, offer up some words about the sexual urge. I've also been getting some questions there, so I thought we can respond to some questions in opening. So. I want to go to John Paul II's love and responsibility to take up this topic of freedom and love, and as John Paul II would have us see it, a freedom that is ordered to love. He says this, Love consists of a commitment which limits one's freedom. It is a giving of the self. And to give oneself means just that, to limit one's freedom on behalf of another limitation of one's freedom might seem to be something negative and unpleasant but love makes it positive joyful and creative freedom exists for the sake of love so often we look upon freedom as a license to do whatever we want to do ivan as opposed to a gift given to us so as to do what we ought to do We see freedom as an end in of itself, as opposed to a means to an end. So ultimately, we are made to see that freedom is given for a purpose, for the sake of love. God gave us freedom so that we could choose to live for others, uh, just not ourselves. Therefore, the purpose of freedom is not to equip us to live a selfish life, uh, slavishly pursuing whatever pleasurable desires come our way, We have been given freedom so that we can choose to rise above that line we were talking about last week, self-seeking, self-getting, and ultimately commit ourselves to other person's and other person's needs. Love, by definition, essentially, again, is to will the good of the other.
1: Yes, and you mentioned right now uh, the word limitation. Yes. And it's not a very attractive word in society today. Because when we think of freedom, we think of no limitations, Yes. as much as you want. And it's no wonder that, remember I told you last session, I had a family member tell me, hey, never fall in love because when a man falls in love, he loses his will mm-hmm. and it hurts. Mm-hmm. And as we talked last time, yes, when a person falls in love, all of a sudden you begin to leave for that other person. It's the nature of love. We begin to do things that we wouldn't do otherwise Mm -hmm. for love for that other person. That's right. And so, yes, definitely there's a strong correlation between love and freedom.
0: Amen. And so as we're talking about this, that is freedom and love, especially in light of our sexuality, Ivan, the other question that has kind of come up is, uh, well, what about the sexual urge? Sometimes I'm bound by it. We have been... And uh, once again, I want to draw from John Paul II's Love and Responsibility, by the way, as just a reminder. Um, I had someone come up to me and say, yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, you know, Man and Women, He Created Them, these five years of Wednesday audiences. I reminded him that Love and Responsibility is the philosophical work that precedes that, where he's really working through philosophically, some of the questions about who we are as created in the image and likeness of God and what that means for us. So he discusses, that is, and John Paul II discusses how the sexual urge manifests itself in the tendency for human persons to seek the opposite sex. Uh, This is, as John Paul II would say, a good. Uh, He says that the sexual urge orients a man towards the physical and psychological characteristics of a woman, her body, or we can say her femininity, which are the very attributes that are most complementary to the man. We see in the Catechism, Ivan, the usage of complementary. You know, what does that mean? That is essentially how we are suited for one another, how we are realized in light of one another. Uh, And so As we talk about this, that is, uh, the complementarity between the man and the woman, uh, specifically to the woman, the woman, in turn, is oriented toward the physical and psychological attributes of a man, his body or his masculinity, as the properties that are naturally complementary to the woman. Hence, the sexual urge, we can say itself, is experienced, Ivan, as a bodily or physical Uh, and emotional or psychological attraction to a person of the other sex. Nevertheless, what is very important for our study as we move forward, Ivan, is to see that the sexual urge is not an attraction to the physical or psychological qualities of the opposite sex in the abstract. In fact, John Paul II emphasizes that these attributes only exist in a concrete human person. For example, no man is attracted to a blonde or brunette in the abstract. He is actually attracted to a woman, right? A particular person who may happen to have blonde or brunette hair, right? A woman is not primarily attracted to masculinity as a theoretical concept, but she may be very well attracted to a particular man who exhibits certain traditionally masculine traits such as courage, decisiveness, strength, and chivalry. These are attributes that properly belong to the man. So the reason John Paul II emphasizes this point is that he wants to show how the sexual urge ultimately, Ivan, is directed towards not a thing, not an object, but a human person, right? The sexual urge is not bad in itself. John Paul II calls it the necessary raw material. It, in fact, is meant to orient us towards another person. The sexual urge is necessary and is to develop a framework for a more authentic love. That's the essence of it. You know, and that's really what's at the heart of John Paul II's understanding. And he, this is reasonable.
1: That's right. And just a few days ago, I was talking to a friend of mine from college, and we were talking about purity and sexuality. And the conversation got really a little bit heated because my friend, he, he was telling me that he's a very good Christian. He's very devoted but devoted to God. But then he's been struggling to accept the teachings on sexuality. Mm-hmm. He says, well, why would God give us this urge, this sexual desire, if we cannot act on it? Mm-hmm. He, he, he saw all these uh, rules of you have to save yourself from marriage, mm-hmm. you have to abstain from pornography, and so on. And so he found himself repressing himself, and he says, I'm burning inside mm-hmm. with this lust, mm-hmm. and I don't know what to do. And I said, man, what we have here is the other extreme, mm-hmm. because the world tells us there's only two options. Yep. So we have the desire, what do we do with it? The world says you have two options. You repress it, and that can be actually very unhealthy. Or you indulge in it. You do whatever you want, whenever you want to. Mm-hmm. But the Catholic Church has a third option, which is a transformation of our, in, our fallen inclinations, where we redirect this desire towards God, and we tell, him, we tell Him, God, thank you for giving me this sexual desire. Thank you for making this woman so beautiful. Because I know that this desire is good. Please help me to experience it the way you want me to experience it. And it's when we offer up our sexuality to God, when we give it to Him, that He transforms us so that we can see this woman with the dignity and with the love that God has for
0: us. Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 to 3, that we need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this is our spiritual worship. He calls us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And that by our testing. By our sacrifices, Ivan, we may better discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul has in mind what you were just talking about, Ivan, this need to give God everything. Mindful that behind sacrifice is the essence of holiness. <laughs> you know, the word itself in the Latin, secum fitse" to make holy. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But in the grace of Jesus Christ and the strength of God, <laughs> you talked about transformation. Again, our Lord has redeemed our bodies.
1: In the words of John Paul II, he said in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2, three, three, six, mm-hmm. Jesus came to restore creation to the purity of its origin. origins. And so what we see here is, What happened when people were asking Jesus' question about sexuality, when they were asking him about divorce, for example? Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. what was the first thing he did? He pointed them back to the origins, Mm -hmm. to the beginning. That's right. He said, said, yes, Moses allowed you to divorce because of the hardness of your heart, but in the beginning, it was not so. That's right. In other words, all these problems that society says are normal, all these um, cheating on each other, all these arguments— At the beginning, we're not part of the plan. Something went really wrong. But he has come here not to judge, but to transform, to redeem us. And this is the great hope that we find in theology of the body, that it is possible to experience our bodies with the purity that it was meant to be.
0: That's right. And as you're talking about that, Ivan, maybe we should jump into uh, our subject matter as it relates to um, our reflections that come out from the book of Genesis. uh, Specifically, as they relate to that original plan, that original solitude. John Paul II makes some wonderful points here that I think would really help us uh, understand moving forward what it's all about. And this is going to also allow us to take up the topic of freedom again, Ivan, which if we are doing our job, we will be talking about freedom as it relates to love, a lot. <laughs> okay. So what is going on there in uh, the story of Genesis?
1: Well, in the story of Genesis, we see the first marriage mm-hmm. between Adam and Eve. And a lot of people, when they, when they think of the story of creation, it, they either will have two responses. Oh, I know this story. I heard it a thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> or they will say that's totally not relevant to my life today. But what we see in theology of the body is that we can get so much from this story, the entire story, particularly what happened before original sin, before Adam and Eve messed up. And we can learn so much about our relationships through that story.
0: Amen. And there's a fine point to be had here when you start talking about Genesis itself, before we get into Adam and Eve. The analogy is given, if I am an optometrist, right, I'm going to look into one's eyes and want to make out what I need to see based upon the science that I have studied. If I am falling in love, I am going to look into the eyes of my future wife, and I'm going to see something entirely different than the optometrist saw, right? Today, Ivan, and I think this kind of gets at what you were saying, you know, Genesis doesn't have anything to do with us. Today, we, we look at Genesis through the lenses of science. But what we forget is the Bible itself is a love story. And the first chapter of that love story is the book of Genesis, remembering that the word Genesis literally means in the beginning. We can never understand any one novel by just jumping into, say, chapters 52 or 55. If you're dealing with a 150-chapter novel, you're always going to start with what chapter, Ivan? Genesis. Yeah. You know. Chapter one, chapter one. But so many of us just want to jump into, well, chapter 48, chapter 49, chapter 50, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But you're not going to understand that if, if you don't first start with chapter one. So we have to start with chapter one. And what we can begin to appreciate as you start reading through the opening chapters of Genesis is that, yeah, this is a love story. And it's interesting to note, Ivan, the Hebrew word for day yom, is more concerned with time, not in the context of clocks, right? Linear time, but more even time that is purpose-driven time, okay? This is what it's about. When God creates on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, he's showing us that there's purpose behind it, and so this is important for us as we uh, begin any treatment on the book of Genesis.
1: That's right. And so what we see in theology of the body is John Paul II gives us uh, a glance or he helps us to understand how did the first man and the first woman experience their bodies? How did they experience love? How is it that they were able to be naked and felt no shame? See, if a supermodel today is walking on stage and her dress gets cut up in a fence or something and if it comes out, mm-hmm. she will immediately do whatever it takes to cover her body. Is it because her body is bad? Is it because it's not pretty? No, she, they're one, one of, some of the most beautiful women in the world. Mm-hmm. Why do they cover their body? Some people will say, well, because there's all these religious laws out there that kind of give them that fear, that shame. But that's if we look at other cultures that are non-Christians, we see that they also have some shame to an extent too. Mm-hmm. So where does this shame come from? Why do we cover our bodies if, as we talked, everything that God created is good? Well, John Paul Zica gets to it. We feel ashamed because we want to protect our body from being used, mm-hmm. for, being, for some people who will not see it with the dignity, the true dignity that it possesses. And when sin enters into the Picture. It was when everything that was good it was twisted. So now, instead of wanting to love one another, we wanted to take from each other, mm-hmm. and so we need, felt the need to cover ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. As you're talking, uh, Ivan, I cannot help but think of an analogy that that relates to a story I actually was sharing the other day. You know, when I was when I was living in Pennsylvania, I had the opportunity to go to a chocolate sculpture. You know I think uh, for a lot of us maybe we've seen these Lego sculptures or in Pennsylvania they have these ice sculptures. Well in one city they had a chocolate sculpture and you know the the chocolate artist had uh, on display dozens of elaborate sculptures of of ships and, and towers and buildings. Now there are two different attitudes I could have towards these chocolate sculptures as I was looking upon them. On one hand, I could gaze upon them as uh, works of art, right? Admiring their beauty and really maybe uh, allowing myself to be taken by their immensity, uh, their proportions, their intricate details and workmanship. Marveling at these delicate masterpieces that were made out of uh, sugar and cocoa, huh? On the other hand, I could ignore the fact that these sculptures are beautiful pieces of art to be contemplated and view them primarily as candies to be devoured, delicious chocolates to uh, serve and satisfy my sense appetite, my cravings. Uh, This later approach would certainly be a downgrade or degradation of what made them so beautiful such a masterpiece. The later approach would reduce them to mere objects to be exploited for my tasting pleasure. Essentially, I bring in this analogy, uh, Ivan, because what we are made to see is the importance between subject and object, and ultimately how we are to view uh, one another in light of the divine genius that is God the Creator, yes, but above all else, God the Father.
1: There is a beautiful story that relates to this that happened in the 14th century. There are several bishops walking out of a church. A, it's actually a cathedral in Antioch. And as they're walking out of this cathedral, they see a prostitute walking on the streets in very revealing clothing. All of the bishops, except for one, turn away, except for this one bishop called Nonos. This bishop stares at this prostitute, and he's amazed. And he stares at her, and then he looks at the bishops, and he says, Brother bishops, doesn't her beauty amaze you, delight you? And then he wept for this woman. Several days after, this woman came back, and she went to one of the homilies for this bishop, and she ended up converting to Christianity, mm. because no other man had ever seen her with the purity that Bishop Nunus had for her. Mm. And this woman became a saint for the Catholic Church known as saint pelagia
0: yeah that is a beautiful story and that's a that is a powerful story
1: and what we what we see here in bishop nonos is he's exhibiting this freedom to see that amazing work of god he's Mm -hmm. experiencing this freedom to not be overpowered by lust but but to be able to see the dignity in this
0: woman that's right ivan and so what's what's going on here we're talking about the woman We're talking about, do we see her as a subject, a person, or do we see her as an object, and vice versa, from the woman to the man. I mean, this just isn't man to woman, but from the woman to the man also. Um, If you were to go into the story of creation, there in the opening verse of chapter 3, what do you see? That Satan was subtle. Okay, the Hebrew word for subtle is the exploitation of nakedness. The exploitation of nakedness. This kind of usurping, Of what is true beautiful and good we must always remember just foundational principles as we're talking about this Ivan the need to be present to the nature of truth and ultimately the battle between good and evil Satan does he has no good in of himself the best he can do is to invert something beautiful something true and to present it as something that it is not essentially plagiarizing truth itself and is there any one thing is there any one thing that he has done that more with than our sexuality? Something very important, I think, that really lies at the heart of this is the way in which uh, Satan has made us think about everything that we're talking about right now. It is to also say that the essence of original sin was to believe in the lie that the Father's plan was not, Ivan, the fullness of truth, beauty, and goodness. I mean the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge was a commandment from God that would protect us from death. Essentially, the consequence of disobeying God's plan of purity, love, and grace is what in fact plunged man into a darkened state of suffering and death. That being said, Ivan, I want to be sure that we get to um, some of John Paul II's language as it relates to uh, this original solitude, this original um, unity, uh, very important, I think, to our, to our study. Definitely. Um, John Paul II speaks so
1: much about our called to live in communion. He says that man, all of us, have something called original solitude. That in the beginning, when Adam was walking in paradise, he noticed the animals, he noticed the rocks, and he noticed that there was something that was missing. And so he experienced this solitude. And so God said, it's not good for man to be alone. He created Eve. Now, when Adam saw Eve, he became aware of her body. The first thing that he saw was her body. And what did he do? He kind of wrote him a poem, bone to my bone, flesh to my flesh. (laughs) And (laughs) what is it that he saw in her body? He saw this call to make a gift of himself to her. So this, in other words, this solitude goes away. Mm-hmm. By them yeah. becoming one flesh, mm-hmm. and it is this communion of persons that is formed by them getting together; it's no longer one, but a communion of persons, which, through their love, give life to new life.
0: I think a, a point to be had here, Ivan, as you're talking is, you know, when in Genesis one twenty-six, God says, "Let us make man in our image and likeness." And what's fascinating to see this first, this language of let us, you know, there's a plurality to God, and one church father, Tertullian, makes a point to say, God is three persons from the beginning. John one one highlights this. When is the next time, Ivan, that you see this language of imaging? It is when Adam and Eve two become one, right, and they create a third. In Genesis chapter five verse three, we see the word image for the first time after we saw it in Genesis 1.26. What we are made to see there is that when Adam and Eve consummate their love, two becoming one and they create a third, they are leaving footprints towards the Trinity. Adam and Eve, as the first family, are at their best when they are imaging God and that consummate of love. As we are talking about theology of the body, and we are talking about our sexuality, what we must always remember is that we have to keep the Trinity in the rearview mirror. The Trinity is everywhere, and this experience that is the communion of persons to becoming one is ecstatic love. John Paul II goes so far as to say that here on earth, there is no one experience that is greater than that that consummate of love as far as that earthly experience. when two become one, that ecstatic union is a foretaste of the union that we will experience in eternity. Wow, I mean that's a that's a strong statement you know I, mean? and it's a beautiful statement, so it's a statement that that's worth getting excited for.
1: yeah, it relates to how. The whole story of salvation is a story of love. It's a story of innocence to marriage. Because the Bible begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this spousal relationship between God and his people. And then where was Jesus' first miracle? At a wedding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then what does St. Paul says in Ephesians 5.31? That this union between a man and a woman points us the ultimate union between Christ and his church. Mm -hmm.
0: And the Bible ends
1: between the marriage, between the Lamb
0: and his Uh, church. Revelation 19, 7, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's right. Um, Beautiful. Of course, that's what we have in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, Ivan, uh, what we are talking about really is that great sacrament where Christ enters into this bridal union with our very souls. Powerful stuff. (coughs) Excuse me. As we talk about the original, you know, Adam's original solitude which ultimately points to original unity. Uh, I, I think a closing point that we can make Ivan um, is is maybe a, a, a summary point as it relates to the nuptial meaning of our body and the importance of understanding what that is.
1: The nuptial meaning of the body means that through our bodies we can discover that we are called to love one another and that God also wants to love us. Mm-hmm. But this love between a man and a woman points us to the ultimate love that can truly satisfy us. That's right. Which is the perfect and total love of God, That's which right. He has destined us for
0: in eternity. Amen, Ivan. That spousal love, that love of total self donation, the spousal meaning of the body. For John Paul II, is the body's power to express love (laughs) precisely that love in which the human person becomes a gift and through this gift how it fulfills the very meaning of our existence of our being to talk about theology of the body really is to talk about the very meaning of our existence and that is what's so beautiful about this subject matter Let us close in prayer, I have in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.